And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined, as always, in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton and Tim... The Mets have won five in a row as we come out of Memorial Day weekend, that time when I have to stop singing the small sample size song and start saying, okay, here's what's happening this season. And what's happening this season for all of the Mets injuries and all we've talked about how beat up this team is, is that they are six games above 500. They have a three and a half game lead over the division. By baseball prospectuses, Pakoda playoff odds, they have a 70% chance of making the postseason. By Fangraphs odds, they have an 84.1% chance uh, of making the postseason. Things for all the doom and gloom we've spun uh, on this show, and and probably uh, that that has been spun in 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 every uh, in every tentacle of this Mets monster. Uh, things are pretty good. Yeah, you know it was it was. Last Thursday that I was doing a, a live Q&A on our website and like several fans were, were ready to give up on the season entirely. And, and one suggested jumping off a cliff of the 2021 baseball season, which seemed premature at that point, considering the team was in first place. They've won four straight since then, five straight overall. And Monday night in Arizona, you know, as, as we're all getting used to, well, I shouldn't say we're all, every, fans are, are all used to it, as I am getting used to uh, staying up on the East Coast to cover a game on the uh, at West. Um, you know, th- that was as for, as crisp a game as they've played in a long time, as, as like encouraging a game going forward as they've played in a long time, because you've got Jacob deGrom uh, being himself. Uh, you had Pete Alonso being himself uh, with four RBIs. You had... Uh, uh, a couple nice at-bats from Francisco Lindor, a couple opposite field doubles from Dominic Smith. There was just a lot to like in that game uh, for the Mets and a lot to, to say, okay, this this looks more like the team, you know, they've been in first place until this point, but this looked more like the team that you thought they might be if they if, if they were in first place, a, t- a team that, you know, scored some runs, uh, got some extra base hits, shut you down as a pitching staff. Uh, it, it was an all-around kind of, of win that, uh, they haven't necessarily had in a while outside of, you know, Saturday against Atlanta. And that's not to mention a rare and welcome laugher of a game on Sunday night, winning 13-2. Um, and you mentioned the, the contributions from from Alonzo, from Lindor on on Monday night's game. But I'm sorry, I said Sunday. It was, it was Saturday's game. They've had so many rainouts that it's hard to keep track. But uh, James McCann's bat starting to come around. Signs of life, really, uh, all across this Mets team. Uh, you mentioned Alonzo, who's now back in the lineup. Seth Lugo back as well. We haven't seen him yet. But it feels like this is a team that hopefully is positioned to avoid the type of June 
that has befallen it in recent seasons. Yeah, I don't know the last time they, I meant to actually look this up, the last time they had a uh, winning record in June. You know, we, since I've been on the beat, uh, you know, I started in 2018, you know, that was the year they went 5-21 and 21 in June, which was their worst record in any month since 1982. Uh, 1982, they went 5-24 and 24 in August, which is actually what the Diamondbacks just did in the month of May. Uh, and then in, in 2019, I think they were 10 and 18 in June, 2020, they, they didn't, they didn't win any games in June. So, uh, but it, you know, that, that has been the month that has, has hurt them the most. And, and there's really like, there's no specific reason why it should be June that they're, you know, they've had some injuries and some, some lack of depth showing up in that month this year, you know, you've got the, the schedule, the first half of June gets a little bit tougher after these, these two remaining games in Phoenix, cause you've got the Padres, uh, for a four-game series this weekend, uh, and then a three-game series the weekend after that, uh, and then a three-game series, uh, sorry, four-game series at home against the Cubs uh, after you play San Diego the second time. So that's, you know, that's 11 games against teams over 500 uh, and comfortably over 500 at the moment uh, in the next uh, 15 that they're playing. Uh, and they've only played 12 games against teams over 500 so far this season, of which they've only won two. Uh, so that, that they haven't been tested by by really good baseball teams yet uh or they haven't passed tests again against really good baseball teams they got swept by tampa bay they got swept by boston over two games uh they got swept by the cubs uh for three in chicago so they, they've struggled in those uh in those contests so far and then the second half of june you just got a lot of games you know they, they play 33 games in 31 days uh from like june 11th to july 11th i believe uh and the all-star break because of all the the double headers three double headers in one week against three different teams uh which means that the other teams don't have the all of the double headers that they have to worry about uh so th those will be you know as as good as it feels for the mets on the morning of june 1st uh there are some some concerns going forward about what might go wrong uh, over the next 30 days we have made it a full five minutes into this episode and not really discussed the return of, of Jacob deGrom, who we've seen once in, in, in and spoken about it, but uh, in, in Monday night's game, I, I think you could almost hear Luis Rojas's sigh of relief at that first hit because deGrom had perfect game stuff and, and you knew he was going to be a little bit limited coming off that injury. Um, and so it, it, it puts Rojas in a bad spot there. If, if deGrom is still perfect when he gets up to around his pitch, pitch count. Yeah. They had talked about six innings or, or 85 pitches, uh, for deGrom in this one with the idea, you know, he'd pitched five, uh, and 63 pitches, I think last time. So they, they kind of wanted to slowly build him. Uh, coming back from the the back soreness, the lat soreness, uh, and you know, next start he might be all full go. Though you know, we'll get to that point in five days. Uh, but he did look, you know, the first first three innings, he's just slicing through everyone. I think it was thirty four pitches for for nine up, nine down, and then he fell behind Josh Rojas three and zero to start the fourth. And I thought like, this is it. This is going to be like the the walk, uh, and then he'll he'll get the next uh, eighteen guys out. Um, but you know, he got through the fourth, but then give up, uh, the, the Carson Kelly line drive base hit in the fifth. Uh, and then a, the, the other one that Billy McKinney probably should have caught in right field, but it, it does seem like, you know, with the way the, I, I think even if there weren't, hadn't been six plus an asterisk, no hitters in major league baseball this year, uh, you would think watching DeGrom every time out that there is a chance he does that because, uh, of how dominant he looks 
uh, for long stretches of baseball games where it, you know, it's he has a lot of one, two, three innings where it doesn't seem like anything is hit hard enough to to like be a hit. Like last night, you know, it's it's a bunch of strikeouts and groundouts. There wasn't a ball hit to the outfield until the fifth inning. Uh, he's retiring the side in more than sixty percent of his innings. Uh, I think it's thirty-one out of fifty-one so far. Uh, so it's really just uh, it feels like it's inevitable that he will eventually throw a no hitter. But I don't know if it if it happens this season or next season or you know when he's forty-two and throwing one hundred and ten miles an hour. Yeah, I think a no hitter is selling it short. I think he's got to throw a pre- like I wouldn't even be that impressed if Jacob Degrom threw a no hitter at this one because I mean he he walked someone or someone reached base on error. That's not what I'm in it for. Like he's he's gonna throw a perfect game. Yeah, I mean that's that's it's never that's felt like something that- you could predict before, right? Where you could be like, <laughs> ah, this guy's gonna throw a perfect game this year. But like Jacob Degrom's gonna throw a perfect game this year. Like I think we've talked about on on this before. Uh, the the Roy Halladay playoff game no hitter against the Reds was is the only no hitter I've covered uh, and being there and, and thinking like by the third inning that this was going to this was going to be mm-hmm. a perfect game uh, and he walked uh, I think it was Jay Bruce in the fifth inning of that game and it was just kind of like oh so it'll just be a no hitter then okay disappointing uh, and that's the feeling you get watching Degrom often is that uh, like how is someone going to get a hit off of this. Uh, it's really just like they, they've got to speed up their bat and catch up to a fastball and hit it hard where someone isn't, uh, which doesn't happen very often. Another guy returning from a similar injury and another and a short DL stint that has been great. Not not quite Jacob deGrom great, but who is Taiwan Walker with a, another really good, albeit short start in, in his in making his return uh, as thin as the Mets starting pitching is stretched right now with with Syndergaard out, uh, not indefinitely, but for the bulk of the season with Carlos Carrasco nowhere to be seen. Uh, we know, you know, they don't have a lot of wiggle room in the rotation, but uh, that front three of DeGrom Walker and Marcus Stroman ha- have have really, I think, done a, a probably the lion's share in, in putting the Mets where they are at this point in the season. Yeah, I mean Walker's ERA is down below two now at at one eight four. So uh, his, his WHIP is below one. As I'm I'm looking at his Baseball Reference page, mm-hmm. uh, it is uh, it's remarkable how good those three guys have been. You know, Peterson has been uh, not quite as good this year as he was last year. He's been more up and down. Has had some rough innings that have gotten away from him. Uh, but uh, Stroman, Degrom, and Walker have have looked every bit as good as you could have hoped for when like. Uh, you know, if this were Degrom, Carrasco, and Syndergaard doing this, you would you wouldn't expect them to be this good, you know. So that's that's what's been so encouraging uh, from their starting staff. Their their starting rotation ERA is uh, it might be now be the best in baseball. Uh, I haven't checked that uh, in the last couple of days, but it's it's under three as a staff. It's two eight one or something going into to Degrom start on Monday. So they're they're getting great starting pitching, and they're you you know. Those guys, maybe with the the exception of of Walker coming back, uh, and I guess Degrom coming back from the injury, they're they're going deep into games with, with mm-hmm. consistency. You know, Stroman feels like he's rolling out of bed and giving you six innings. Uh, Degrom is is pitching so efficiently this year. You know, Steve Gelbs talked on the broadcast last night about how he's leading the league in pitches per inning. He's down to like thirteen point four pitches per inning after being at sixteen point seven last Destru- year. Despite but, striking everybody out, despite striking right, everybody like, out, it's not he's like he's striking, just getting ground balls. Yeah, he's striking everybody out in three pitches because no one can foul off the fastball the way they did last year. Uh, and and Walker's given them uh, some six and seven inning outings, even though I think his average 
per start is is like five and a half. That's been affected by some of the a, a couple short ones where he's left in the fifth, fourth or fifth inning. Uh, but they're getting length from those guys, which means you know on most nights when they pitch, it's it's Degrom to Miguel Castro and Trevor May and Edwin Diaz. Uh, you're using your good bullpen guys behind them, and those guys are are performing. We're not seeing guys blow games behind Jacob Degrom the same way uh, they they might have in in years past. Yeah, and I would say the bullpen, you know, outside of the the existential spate of injuries, the bullpen has to qualify as as the biggest surprise uh, for the Mets this season to date. Uh, really up and down. Outside of, I mean, right now the only guy with an ERA over. 3.38 in their active bullpen is Jacob Barnes, who has himself been a, a lot better. He had a, a few real rough outings early on, and he's been a lot better. Um, but a curious move in that bullpen upon the return of, of Seth Lugo, who, again, we ha- we still haven't seen, um, was that they, they sent a, a guy I've become a pretty big fan of, Sean Reed Foley, down to the minors. Was that a, Do you think that's a matter of just like, Bullpen logistics, he had thrown uh, two and a third innings the day or two days before they sent him down. With a guy like that, I don't I don't know that how long that sets him back. Like you, maybe you have one more day you're laying off of him. Um, is it just a, a matter of who has options? Like why why is why is that guy with a 1.980 ERA, albeit only in, in 13 and two thirds innings, why is he the one to go? Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably uh, a matter of options, right? Because Barnes is the guy that the like you said, has probably been uh, the only one in that bullpen who hasn't been really lights out so far this year, uh, and he doesn't have options. You, you expose him, uh, you send him down, you expose him to waivers, he probably gets claimed. Uh, and we know with all of the injuries that they have had uh, that they could use retaining some depth. So uh, that that's why uh, I think they sent Reed Foley down. You know, like you look at the rest of the cast, you know, you're not going to send Diaz, Castro, May, Familiar, or Loop down. You don't want to send Barnes down. So it's really came down to Reed Foley, Robert Gazelman, or, or Drew Smith, and all of those guys have pitched really well. Uh, so, uh, you know, Reed Foley kind of, by the nature of being the last, you know, it's kind of the uh, last one in, first one out, I guess, part of that bullpen uh, that, that he gets sent down. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what how they use Seth Lugo. That's something that, that really interests me, is whether they use him, you know, in the past they've used him like whatever emergency situation they needed him for, which was, you know, first a setup man, then a closer, then a starter. Uh, and we'll see, you know, if they've got kind of the the foundation around him, can they use Seth Lugo the best way to use Seth Lugo versus the best, the thing this team needs right now. Uh, and I, I've always felt that's like pitching him for two innings every third day or something like that. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm eager to see how the Mets deploy him, uh, you know, maybe not right away because they'll probably try to ease him in a little bit. Uh, but, you know, once he gets his feet on the ground and, and, and looks like Seth Lugo, uh, how often they use him and for how long they use him. Uh, with Reed Foley, and, I, and I'm putting you on the spot here because I don't, I don't know the answer here, but it was something that we discussed on, on the most recent show thanks to a reader question. Uh, and, and I mentioned, you know, how thin the starting pitching has been stretched. Do you think that there's a chance that uh, in AAA they look to stretch him out as a starter given that that um, seems like the most pressing potential need? You know, maybe they stretch him out a little bit more. I don't think, you know, we, we always talk about with Lugo, you know, are they going to stretch him out as a starter? Uh, I don't think with those guys and even with guys who are, you know, who have pitched as starters for the Mets this year, Lucchese and, and Jordan Yamamoto uh, among them. 
I don't think they're thinking along the same lines of like, well, he's either going to be a, a one or two inning reliever for us, or he's going to be a six or seven inning starter. I think they're looking at kind of that that space in between, which is like the guy who throws maybe four innings. We're happy if we get four out of him. You know, Reed Foley has has done that with to three innings uh, on a few occasions for the Mets. So maybe they they try to get like an additional fourth inning out of him. But I don't think it's it's why don't you go down to AAA and learn how to throw uh, a full six innings again? Um, I, I think you know given the depth of their bullpen, that they're getting contributions really one through eight, really one through 12 uh, in their bullpen. The guys who have been going back and forth, like Reed Foley, have been really good for them. Uh, they've pitched to an ERA under three this year, uh, guys who spent time in the minors and majors in their bullpen. You know, I, I think they just want like some bulk innings from those guys, uh, but you don't have to get them to the the late game guys. You know, if, if uh, Lucchese can throw four good innings keep you in the game and then you can go to gazelman for the fifth and sixth and then you get into uh the late in guys or go to drew smith for a couple innings i think that's kind of the the formula they see for themselves uh in the like fifth sixth and seventh starter spots that they'll probably have to end up using with with the double headers later in the month and that's a luxury you get from having that strong trio at the, at the front of the rotation, especially uh, Stroman and DeGrom, who have been working so deep into games because then it, it takes... You're not going to have to use uh, Drew Smith for, for two innings after Stroman or after DeGrom. And so, you you know, you, you get uh, a couple of built-in days off for those more, like, bulky innings type guys in the, in the bullpen. Um, and that allows you, I think, to be a little more flexible with backing up Lucchese or Peterson or, uh, you know, if the time comes, Zipaki or Reed Foley or whoever else is in, in the back end of that rotation. Uh, but let's flip over to the offensive side uh, because we still have, and, and we mentioned the bats starting to come around. Pete Alonso looking good. He said he feels like Pete, which uh, is, a, is a good thing to hear. Um, obviously, you know, we keep talking about Jonathan Villar and, and Jose Peraza. Praza and and Tomas Nito and and the contributions they've made uh, from that bench mob now the most of the lineup mob um, but we've got Jeff McNeil Michael Conforto Brandon Nimmo J D Davis Luis Guillorme Albert Almora Janeshwi Fargus um, all still on the disabled list who do we see first when are because because it seems like we just keep uh, you know it's Nimmo we we thought would be back in ten days um, a month and a half ago. When when are some of the when is more of the cavalry returning? Yeah, so I think Guillaume is probably going to go out on a rehab assignment this week. Uh, so he might be the first of those back. Almora could start a rehab assignment this week, so he'd he'd come back after that. Those are probably the guys you're you're less excited to hear. I mean, they're they would be helpful, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, you know they're not guys who are in the opening day lineup. Uh, McNeil and Conforto, they're kind of in a holding pattern with their hamstring strains. Uh, it's probably another month or close to it until we see them. Uh, so that, th- that those are the big losses for them right now. Uh, J.D. Davis is closer to a rehab assignment than Brandon Nimmo. Uh, there, there had been, you know, I, I did not, uh, I was not covering the weekend game against the Braves. Uh, so there, there have been some talk about you know Davis potentially starting a rehab assignment as soon as today, Tuesday with Syracuse. That's not happening. Uh, they haven't set uh, a time frame for uh, when that might happen uh, for him. Whether it's you know they, they haven't been as firm in saying like that should start this week with Davis as they have been with Guillaume. And then Nimmo is still waiting for that pain to subside in his his finger because of the nerve issue. Again, all words that don't sound great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
you know, they're again like just kind of waiting to see how that that plays out. Uh, but at least you've got uh, Alonzo Alonzo back in the middle of that order to give you like, you know, they've had for the last several weeks like a bunch of really good, you know, their their usual players, usual starters have been left-handed hitters. Uh, and then kind of filling out the lineup with some righties in the back half. Uh, now you've got Alonzo as a, uh, a middle-of-the-order right-handed hitter that they haven't had. But, you know Why we were seeing guys like James McCann and Tomas Nito hitting third, fourth, fifth for them for a little while. Uh, it's nice to have Alonzo back in that spot, uh, knocking in runs the way he did on Monday night. And not quite a middle-of-the-order type guy, but uh, also Kevin Pillar, uh, very much uh, making himself a, a hero, returning already from the multiple facial fractal fractures he he suffered on that that gruesome hit by pitch. Good to see him back with a with a pinch hit single in Monday night's game, and good to see um, you know another credible major leaguer that they can run out in center field because they they sort of ran short on those. Yeah, you know, the, that was the biggest uh, void in the lineup recently was, was center field with, with Cameron Mabin struggling the way he did with the team. Uh, you know, they, they call up Mason Williams, who, who looked who had been raking in AAA uh, and looked good last night, uh, Monday night, at, at the plate and in the field, making a, a terrific catch in center field on, I think, a Domingo Leba fly ball. Uh, and then Pilar comes in a, in a double switch. Uh, and, and gets a hit in his first at-bat. I think it's remarkable with him because you look back at the time he was hit in the chin when he was with the Giants, and then he hit like 400 for the next week. Uh, didn't miss any time that time. Uh, and you always think, like, you know, when, it, when a guy gets hit up there, uh, there's going to be like a week where, you know, the first week be back terrified. playing, don't I don't mean, expect them to do anything. Could you imagine standing in the batter's box after that's happened to you? I, I, you know, I can't, I can't. It's like impossible to process uh, how how someone's mind could allow them to just stand there. Like I would just, I, I don't know. I think I would be done forever. I don't think I could ever play baseball again. Uh, and and he's playing. You know, he played left field uh, the last couple of innings last night with uh, a, a protective mask on. That one, the one he's wearing currently, is not custom fit. That that that's kind of like a store bought one. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're gonna get him a custom fit one. Uh, he you know he didn't. Uh, I think there was one ball. It seemed like. Uh, that, that snuck by him. It was one that I don't think he would have caught under normal circumstances, uh, but maybe. Uh, but he, you know, he didn't look 100% comfortable going after it. Uh, you know, the the way the mask. I don't. You know, he's not wearing it while he's batting because of the way it cuts into his peripheral vision. I'm not sure how that affects him fielding. It seemed like uh, it affected him a little bit on Monday, uh, but we'll see when he gets back into the starting lineup. I thought it was a little strange that they activated him. Uh, at a time where he said he was still working through a, a few things, you know, because of the rain over the weekend, he didn't get a chance to test out that mask while, like, you know, shagging fly balls during batting practice or something like that. Uh, but he was able to do that on Monday, and he, you know, the the team clearly uh, viewed that as a, a lift. You had post game uh, Alonzo and and Degrom speaking very earnestly about what it meant to see Kevin Pillar back, let alone back playing and getting a base hit for them. That this is the kind of a uh, veteran that has come in and 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 made a, a presence with himself uh, in the clubhouse in a in a good way for the Mets. Maybe that custom mask will be like one of the old timey like plague masks, like a, one of the big beaks, like an eyes wide shut or something like that. I like to for the moment at least we can we can speculate about that. Perhaps a mask with the image of his uh, unfractured face 
on it. So like he's just wearing a mask of his own face. That might be interesting. Um, I said that he pinch hit incorrectly. You corrected me. Thank you. Uh, it was a double switch. I was long asleep at that point. I, I lasted <laughs> I lasted until DeGrom let up the hit because I wasn't going to sleep before that. And I think I made it an inning or two after that. But uh, yeah, West Coast games when you've got two tiny children. Uh, difficult to get all the way through um, without without passing out. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, we got a good question from a reader, and this one's this one's for you more than it's for me, for sure. Um, Matt wants to know, he says, I just finished reading The Worst Team Money Could Buy by John Harper and Bob Klappish about the train wreck of a 1992 season, which I remember very well. Um, Beyond the combustible nature of the team, both on and off the field, one of the storylines I found most intriguing was the ins and outs of being a Mets beat writer. Seemed like there were about six guys who covered the team day to day and travel with the team. They do short bios on all of them toward the beginning of the book. My questions are this: before the my questions are thus. I said uh, before the pandemic, what had that staple of beat writers ballooned to, and were there writers that still traveled on team charters? How has the dynamic between players and writers changed since the book was written? Uh, and he has got more questions too that I can follow up with. But uh, you were not on the beat in in 1992 because you were a, a child, um, so I, I know you can't speak to that, but. Uh, give Matt a little information. What's the, what is the dynamic, I guess, the pre-pandemic and, and current dynamic of, of being a Mets beat writer? Yeah, so I, I read that book last year uh, and I really liked it. You know, it's, it's one of those those books that uh, you know about for a while uh, and you find I finally decided uh, to pay, you know, $10 for it and read it last June when I was reading uh, every book I could get my hands on because there was nothing else to do. Uh, and, and the thing that really did strike me about it uh, was uh, like the... Uh, intimacy of the relationship that the, that the be- that that Harper and Clappish mm-hmm. had with several players, like that they they knew them uh, in a way that I've never known any any player. Uh, that you know they're going out with them after games. Uh, they're playing pickup basketball with David Cohn in the morning in Pittsburgh or something. Uh, and they just have uh, a relationship that that I think is really hard for beat writers to have in the current state of things. Like I I was never I've, I've been a beat writer uh, in the majors uh, since 2011. Uh, I was never on a, a team plane. I don't. I don't know. I've never worked with a writer who, who in that time has been on a team plane. I think there have been some writers in other markets, smaller markets, where uh, there have been kind of emergency situations where they they fly on the team plane. But it, it's not something that happens uh, regularly for anyone who covers Major League Baseball as a beat writer anymore. The, like the TV guys and the radio guys are on the plane, uh, so that that's one difference that they they get. Uh, a little bit 
better relationship at times or uh, in some notable instances, a much worse relationship mm-hmm. because they're on the team plane. Uh, so, you know, that that's how that works with travel. You're just we're just flying commercial. Uh, yeah, my understanding, my understanding on that is that the, what changed um, and and I think it's you know, it's it's clear to me that it's a far more professional arrangement for a beat writer to not be traveling on the team charter. But I think what what. Uh, at least by, by my understanding, what what catalyzed that change was just the the rise of of airline points and miles and and uh, you know riders traveling so often that they didn't really want to uh, tank airline miles by by flying on a charter when they could be flying Delta and then and then get themselves a a, a nice vacation after the season's over. See, I, I don't know. I always assumed that the teams just kicked us off because that that would you know that, that would, would also make sense. Yeah. Do. Uh, and I, for one, you know, having flown a lot of like 7.30 a.m. flights out of uh, Logan and LaGuardia in my time, uh, would prefer the uh, oh yeah <laughs> the amenities of a, of a charter flight. Um, yeah, I, well, and uh, so I know for, for sure that um, back during in the in the postseason a long time ago that there used to just be a Baseball Writers America, uh, of America charter flight. And so like between World Series and between legs of the World Series, all of the writers would just get on the writer charter rather than flying individually. Um, and that was definitely, I think, the the airline miles that that did that in. It was that, that people didn't want to pay the money for the team charter for for the writer charter and and not wind up getting anything for themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. But you know, like this is a this is a topic of conversation not just in baseball but in, in sports with with Naomi Osaka and the French Open, like you know, especially in the 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 current uh, t- access regulations where everything is on Zoom and just about mm-hmm. everything is a group interview and everything is a televisable group interview. Uh, that that's it's really not. Uh, a plus for anyone <laughs> um you know players get kind of the the more banal questions that that lead to cliches uh they get they roll their eyes well because if you're working on something if you're working cliches. on something unique or, or or unusual then if you ask that question of first of all it's very like it, you know like i used to always want to know guys like i'm not gonna in a post game interview be like hey by the way what's your favorite sandwich like sorry about the facial fractures but let, we gotta know what sandwich are you eating when you get home, Kevin Pillar? Right, like you're not going to ask the dumb questions, which sometimes lead to good answers, and you're not going to like. I don't think you're going to want to. And you could, I, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I, I almost feel like you you don't really want to scoop yourself by asking questions that are are going to uh, then seed answers that everyone will use to write the same column as you. Yeah, and that you've got to try to like uh, sneak in those questions, you know. And, and it was funny in spring training uh, talking with some of the other beat writers, like you know, you knew the story that someone else was working on because oh, like like in my case, I was I was going to write a story about their outfield defense, uh, and we had Brandon Nimmo one day, so I asked him about you know working with Tony Tarasco, and then we had Dom Smith three days later, and I asked him the same thing. Then we had Conforto a day after that, and I asked him the same thing. And I'm being made fun of like when's that Tony Tarasco story yeah. coming out? Yeah, you know that's what I'm working on at, at that point. Uh, and like you go back to the the playoffs last year, it was it was Walker Bueller who got asked about like the tightness of his pants being yeah, and uh, he said like a thing and, on Twitter right uh, after a World Series game in a, after a, a loss press right didn't he lose uh, and Bueller just saying like not the time or place uh, which is true that is not the time or place the problem is there is no other time or place uh-huh. right uh, for questions like that like 
uh, more casual, lighthearted questions. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I think, um, you know, this happens more often in the NBA now, like the, the playoff podium uh, becomes a, a, a becomes like a power dynamic between player and reporter. We don't get that as much on Zoom, uh, but there, it's still, you know, it. I, I've covered baseball where uh, not every managerial press conference was not every managerial interaction was a press conference mm-hmm. uh, and they weren't all immediately on television uh, right and that was always like a much easier dynamic with a manager where you can say like hey you know why why did you do this strategic move without him feeling like he's being put on the spot and like you're trying to embarrass him publicly or something right like that. which you is can have yeah a, a detailed conversation about the strategy behind something uh, and you can throw out, oh, well, I might have done this, uh, and they you can go back and forth, and it's not necessarily contentious in a way that it would be uh, if it were happening in front of uh, the rest of the media and the entire fan base. You don't get sunned on TV by Willie Randolph the first time you ever work up the the courage to ask a question in a post game press conference. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, and and I again, I've never been on a, a beat, but just. Um, from observing the Mets clubhouse, I've spent a lot of time in the Mets and Yankees clubhouses and a lot of time in visiting clubhouses, cl- time in clubhouses on the road. And, and we've discussed it like there are just so many members of the media when the when the clubhouse is open, uh, you often get like 40 members of the media and there's only three or four guys at their lockers, even like that you you would talk to. Um, it's it's a difficult, you know, and and. Uh, no one wants to. I, I can. I think I can complain about this because I'm. I'm not working in, in the industry right now. Other, you know. Um, but and no one wants to hear it. It's. It's difficult to um, get those scoops, those exclusives. I think that that um, beat writers might get on the road really, and and in the in the pre-pandemic times. Um, it's in, in a Mets clubhouse, in a Yankees clubhouse, if you're a stranger, which I always was, um, I found it very, it's, it's very difficult to have like really a a meaningful conversation with someone beyond those like sort of standards and, and cliches because, um, something that's happened to me and it's, it's really weird is like in the few times that I did work up the, the, the courage to like, let me try to talk to this guy and just like not be recording and, and maybe see if I can develop a relationship here. What happens is someone you don't know from the media will just sort of swoop in and stick a microphone out and join in on your conversation. And it's very awkward. Like, it's very weird when you're just like, you know, shooting the breeze with someone or attempting to. And then someone else comes in, like, because everyone's different when they're when they're being recorded. And so someone else comes in with a recorder and then the whole dynamic of that conversation changes. Um, and so, you know, I'm not someone who I think is terribly good at, at developing relationships with strangers anyway um and so i always found that like a a huge challenge like i just felt like i'm never going to be able to get stories the way a beat writer can um because i'm not on the road with team and so i have to imagine um not being on the road for you is has been a huge challenge these past couple years yeah the, the road is where you really you know develop those relationships where you go from the three or four dozen reporters who are there at home uh to you know six to eight uh i think I, th- I think the question asks how many guys are, are traveling yeah. with the team. I, I think it's uh, how many people are traveling with the team uh, as beat writers. I believe it's six because you've got uh, Newsday, the Daily News, uh, the Post, uh, the Athletic, MLB.com, the Record. Um, I think that's it. The Times is the, No, the, t- the Times does not. They don't have a, a regular beat writer. 
uh, on the team. They they haven't since James Wagner moved uh, okay. after the 2018 season. Uh, so huh. you know th- those are the the people. You know if you're uh, under normal circumstances in the clubhouse in Arizona uh, later this afternoon on Tuesday, uh, you you know they'll probably be like maybe 10 people in there because there might be uh, a couple Arizona reporters who sneak mm-hmm. in to, to, to try to do something. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's what hasn't been there. You know, even traveling under you know, the people, I'm not in Arizona, some of the other reporters are, even out there, I don't, you know, I'm not sure if they're if they're getting anything that I'm not uh, by being there. Uh, certainly like the environment of the game, uh, but in terms of access, nothing at the moment, although that, that, I believe is supposed to be changing in Major League Baseball relatively soon in terms of, of being able to uh, be on the field for batting practice uh, and talk to players uh, in an in interview setting face-to-face that hasn't had to be prearranged with the PR staff where you can just kind of grab a guy and say, hey, do you have a minute? Uh, and ask him the kinds of questions that you would usually ask in the clubhouse setting. Uh, so that would be uh, a really big step forward, really help uh, in a lot of ways because uh, there's just so many like little little observations you make over the course of a game or little follow-ups you want to ask that don't work for a press conference mm-hmm. setting and are not important enough to like arrange an entire phone call around. Uh, right. Like there's been something I've wanted to ask Trevor May about since April. Uh, and there just hasn't been enough, re- you know, I need like eight other things to ask him about in order to justify setting up a long phone call with him to take time out of his day. And I, I just, I haven't had the other, you know, I've got like four other things now, but I need, not at the eight other things. You got to fill it up. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we can work on that. We can come up with more questions for Trevor May. But Matt had a, a second question in his email, which was, uh, again, related to the worst team money could buy. He wants to know, what are your favorite books about the Mets? Uh, that's up there. Uh, that I mean, that's that's funny because it's, you know, as a Mets fan, I'm not sure uh, <laughs> whether you love that or hate that, depending on what, what you experienced in 1992. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting to get, uh, you know, I, I was taken aback by the candor that, that Harper and Clappish had about uh, like what it was like to cover certain players, you know, how much they enjoyed hanging out uh, with David Cohn, how much they, they disliked uh, Jesse Orozco, which I didn't huh. know, uh, that he was not, uh, he was a, a particularly difficult member of the team to deal with as a media uh, member. Uh, I love um, Can anyone, Can't Anybody Here Play This Game by Jimmy Breslin, which I read last year as well. Uh, about the 1962 Mets, just full of uh, great stories. Um, those are probably the two that stand out. I have a, a bunch about the 69 team that I haven't read yet because, uh, you know, w- once they won, there were a lot of uh, books written about them. Uh, I haven't gotten, I, I bought a bunch of them last year, but I haven't gotten around to reading them yet. Uh, I haven't read Bill Madden's Tom Seaver biography yet. Uh, that's that's kind of on my next to do bookshelf. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's anything I'm missing in terms of, of Mets books. I haven't read Devin Gordon's uh, new book, So Many Ways to Lose. Uh, I, you know, I, we did the interview with Mike Puma. I liked that book, uh, If These Walls Could Talk. Uh, so there, there's there's no shortage of good Mets literature out there. Uh, and I I encourage everyone to explore every aspect of it. Yeah, The Bad Guys One is another one. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Jeff Perlman's book, which uh, I, I think is a, is a bit of a classic about the 1986 Mets. And one I really enjoyed my... Um, I, I am very bad about reading nonfiction books in general and, and especially baseball books. I, I don't know. It's just, um, having been, 
uh, it feels like a little bit of a, I guess you could, you could look at it as this is work and you should do more work or, or you could say like, well, that's a busman's holiday, right? Like I'm already spending a lot of my time writing about baseball and going to baseball games and spending a lot of my free time going to baseball games on top of that. Like when I'm, when I'm going to read, I'm going to, uh, find something else to read about most of the time. So I'm, uh, sort of embarrassingly poorly read in, in terms of, especially Mets books. I've read more probably like national baseball classics than than Mets books specifically. Although I will say I do remember reading a Lenny Dykstra autobiography at a very young age. And uh, I should not have done that. That was like on uh, that and Bo Jackson's autobiography, which I read when I was like seven years old. Um, and I just like did, someone should have screened that for me. Like someone, no one should have allowed a, a seven year old or an eight year old or whatever, however old I was when it came out to read about Bo Jackson's college sex life, which was detailed uh, in that book. Um, uh, if you have a question for the for the podcast, please send it along. Uh, you can email as Matt, as Matt did at asktedberg at gmail.com, or you could hit us up on Twitter. Uh, Tim is at Tim Britton. I am at OG Ted Berg. Tim, you mentioned they've got two more with the, with the Diamondbacks, and then a much tougher schedule following that, and we... As always, we'll be back to talk about it. Adios. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.